December 7, 1993. A train moves eastbound, leaving Flatbush Avenue Station in Brooklyn, heading for Long Island, with its final destination being in Hicksville. The passengers are unaware that a man sitting in the third car has dark designs for their day. As the train approaches the Marillon Avenue station, a man, later revealed to be of Jamaican origin, stands up. He proceeds to pull a Ruger P-89 handgun, after which he opens fire. Initially, many of those who were aboard the train suspected that the sounds they were hearing were either caps or fireworks. But as minutes pass and the carnage grows, they realize that the sounds they are hearing are gunshots. The man, Colin Ferguson, walks calmly down the train car, shooting people to either side of him, while reportedly saying over and over again, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. As the bodies began to fall on the train, people in the third car, realizing now what was happening, began to panic. They started to stampede the car while the shooter continued firing, calmly and methodically aiming at each individual target, looking them square in the eyes before pulling the trigger. When all was said and done, after three harrowing minutes, six people would lie dead with another 19 injured. And in the aftermath, many would be left to question why this unknown man, Colin Ferguson, had decided to open fire on a commuter train on the Long Island Railroad. You are listening to The Death Cast, and this is the story of Colin Ferguson, the Long Island Railroad shooter. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Tot, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for episode 51, the Long Island shooter. As you heard in the introduction, we're going to be looking today at the case of Colin Ferguson, which took place on December 7th. 1993 in Long Island. Before we get into the case, however, we have a couple show notes and plugs. If you would like to follow me on social media, that would be Facebook, MeWe, YouTube, and Instagram. Just look for Ian Totten, author. If you would like to follow this show specifically on Facebook, look for The Death Cast under Pages and click Like and you'll be part of the community. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, just search for Corpse Creek Publishing at Corpse Creek. If you would like to keep up to date on everything going on in my world, from my writing to the podcast, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and sign up for the mailing list. And while you're there, please consider clicking on the donate button and buying me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. I'd like to thank Mr. M from an unknown island in the South Pacific for his donation this week. He went to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and clicked on the donate button. It is much appreciated. If you're interested in purchasing any of my books, you can find them either through the website or at Amazon.com. There's currently five novels out. The Blood Gods Trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, and The Throwaway of Girls of Olympia. And on the 30th of this month, my sixth novel, Maggie, will be released. So, keep your eyes peeled for that. You can also purchase an autographed copy of Maggie through the website by clicking on that donate button. 
and donating either $20 for the paperback copy or $30 for the hardcover copy. Just please remember to leave your address and specify which book it is that you are trying to get a copy of and any inscription you would like inside the cover. Lastly, just an update, I've got some major things going on in my real world life, so this may be the last episode of the Deathcast for a couple of weeks, don't worry, I will be back, but I've got stuff going on that's going to require me to shift my focus uh, completely for a little bit, but the show will return. With all of that said... Find yourself somewhere to relax, kick back, put your feet up, get something to drink. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. As you heard in the trailer for this week's show, we're looking at the Long Island Railroad shooting that took place on December 7th, 1993. Before we, you know, really look at the shooting, however, we do need to look at the perpetrator, Colin Ferguson. So we'll do things a little bit different with this case, and then we're going to look at the way Ferguson grew up his early adult years moving to America before we look at the actual crime that he committed. Colin Ferguson was born in Kingston, Jamaica on January 14th 1958 to a very wealthy and influential family. He was one of at least four brothers. Born to Von Herman Ferguson and his wife Mary Ferguson. Now, Von Herman was a pharmacist and the managing director of a company called Hercules Agencies, which was called, according to Time Magazine, one of the largest and most prominent businesses in Jamaica. Hercules was a pharmaceutical company, and Von Herman was well-known in Jamaica to the higher-ups in the government, and you know, was very well-respected. And it seems that Colin had a fairly privileged childhood, unlike many of those who live in Jamaica. The family lived in a two-story home that included a nanny and a housekeeper in the Kingston suburb of Havendale. Colin attended the Calabar High School from 1969 to 1974, and was later described as a well-rounded student who played cricket and soccer. And it should be noted that Ferguson graduated in the top of his class. From what I have seen, Ferguson doesn't seem to have done much in the way of supporting himself after graduating high school. It appears that, you know, he and his brothers really lived off of the family fortune. Things started to change in 1978, though, when Von Herman was killed in an automobile accident. A lot of articles you will find on this case state that Von Herman's funeral was attended by both military and government officials. And not long after Von Herman died, his wife, Mary, succumbed to cancer. For some reason, the death of the patriarch and matriarch of the Ferguson family completely wiped out the family's fortunes, which I find very difficult to wrap my head around as if they were as wealthy as the reports would have you believe, you would imagine that 
you know, their children would be set up for life after their deaths, but that appears not to be the case. Makes me wonder if, you know, the government may not have seized some of the family's finances, or maybe the children mismanaged them to the point that, you know, they were driven into destitution. It was noted by friends and other family members, though, that the deaths of both of his parents had a very disturbing effect on Colin. So much so that in 1982, Ferguson left Jamaica, coming to the United States on a visitor's visa. Supposedly, Ferguson complained to friends back home that he had a difficult time upon coming to America because he felt that there was racism everywhere and that because of his race he was unable to find anything outside of menial jobs. I have to wonder though if the reason he was unable to find anything outside of menial jobs is because of the fact that he only had a high school education and it doesn't appear that he did much in the way of working after graduating high school, which would certainly go towards showing his lack of abilities, you know, in higher paying jobs. As for the racism charge, we see it in the news every day. There's racism towards every race in this country. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. No matter where you go, you're going to find somebody who doesn't like you because of your skin color. Although I suspect that the reality is Ferguson was finding it difficult to integrate himself within African-American communities because he was Jamaican and despite their skin colors being the same, there are differences between these two groups. And I say that not to come across as you know, uncaring, but I have seen it myself where somebody from another country comes over here and has a difficult time integrating into what should technically be their racial community because of differences in themselves, not in the community they're trying to integrate into. Again, you have to remember, Ferguson was noted to have undergone a change of personality after the death of his parents, and I'm sure this change was off-putting. It seems that he was somewhat of an erratic individual. And your average person is not going to want to engage with somebody who is acting erratic or, you know, aggressive towards other people. They just don't want that kind of drama in their life. Ferguson was, however able to find a Jamaican woman by the name of Audrey Warren, who was an American citizen of Jamaican descent, and Ferguson and Warren married on May 13th, 1986, which allowed Ferguson to become a permanent resident of the United States. The couple ended up moving into a house on Long Island, and neighbors recalled that the two of them often fought, usually violently, and that the police were called to the residence on more than one occasion. Apparently, the marriage was so tumultuous that on May 18, 1988, Audrey was able to obtain an uncontested divorce from Ferguson, claiming that the marriage ended quote-unquote because they shared different social views, with friends and family later stating that Warren told them Ferguson was much too aggressive and antagonistic. 
Friends of Ferguson later went on to state that the divorce further contributed to Ferguson's mental anguish and that it was a crushing blow to him personally. And that following this divorce, they saw further changes in his personality. And there is evidence of Ferguson's deteriorating mental state, as you will see in a moment. Colin ended up getting a job for the Ademco Security Group in Syosset, New York, which is on the north shore of Long Island, and he was doing clerical work. And while I don't know how well the job paid, I can't imagine that it was too far beneath him. It's not like he was flipping burgers in any or anything. He was working in an office. On August 18th of 1989, Colin was standing on a stool attempting to reach a box of invoices on top of a filing cabinet when he slipped and fell, injuring his head, neck, and back. This incident led to Ferguson being released from his job, and he eventually filed a complaint with the New York State Workers' Compensation Board, which began looking into his claim. I have to wonder, just based on what I know about Ferguson, if this incident wasn't the last straw. Because Ferguson was known to be aggressive with his co-workers and would routinely make claims about white co-workers saying racial epithets to him as well as claiming that black co-workers were quote-unquote Uncle Tom's. This type of behavior doesn't seem to have been present in Ferguson, at least not as pronounced prior to his coming to the United States, and I have to wonder if the death of his parents and then the failure of his marriage did not contribute to these thoughts that he was having and cause him to become unhinged. Ferguson ended up enrolling at the Nassau Community College in East Garden City, Long Island, where it's noted that he was on the Dean's List at least three times. However, he was also forced to leave a class after he became aggressive with a teacher. This led to a disciplinary hearing board which found him guilty. It seems that though, as though at this point his aggressive tendencies really began to flare up. In 1990, Colin transferred to the Adelphi University in Garden City, where he majored in business administration. And it was noted later in the media that Ferguson began to speak out against living with whites and was known around campus to call for acts of violence and revolution against what he saw as his oppressors. Again, we see a lot of this kind of stuff going on in our society today. Whether you're for it or against it, I don't care. That's your fucking problem. This guy was a much different breed than what we're seeing today. He would make accusations against people of racism that never took place. When I say that, I'm not saying that he may not have encountered acts of racism, but he made really grandiose claims such as a white woman in a library began screaming racial slurs at him after he asked her about a lesson 
in the class, and this was investigated and found to be entirely fabricated. This wasn't the only incident like this that took place. Ferguson would take umbrage with someone for no conceivable reason and then turn around and charge that he had been the victim of racism where, in fact, there was no evidence, be it, you know, security camera footage or witnesses who saw the entire interaction. There was no evidence that these things were taking place, and it seems in hindsight that a lot of this stuff was happening in between his two ears. Another incident that occurred while enrolled at Aldelphi University is Ferguson participated in a symposium put on by one of his professors. This professor was relating her experiences while visiting South Africa, and Ferguson created a ruckus during her lecture by screaming out, we should be talking about the revolution in South Africa and how to get rid of the white people and that they needed to quote-unquote kill everybody white. And this disruption was such that when the teacher who was giving the lecture and other students attempted to calm Ferguson, he began threatening them and telling them that the quote-unquote black revolution will get you. Again, these are not the actions of an individual who is fighting for change in what he sees as an unjust society so much as it is the actions of an individual who is obviously mentally ill. Ferguson ended up being suspended from the school because of this incident, and while he was free to reapply to the school after his suspension ended, he chose not to. Somewhere around this time period, be it before or after he was suspended from school, Ferguson moved into a room in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn, and it was noted at the time that he was unemployed. Neighbors later said that while he was very well dressed, he kept mostly to himself and rarely, if ever, smiled. The few individuals who did have interactions with Ferguson stated that he would really just ignore you except for maybe a brief hello. However, his landlord would later tell the New York media that Ferguson told him, quote-unquote, I'm such a great person, there must be only one thing holding me back. It must be white people. And I know there's some people who are thinking... You know, this stuff is unverifiable, but it's actually very verifiable, and as you will see when we get to his trial, was completely in character for Colin Ferguson. At some point in 1992, his ex-wife filed a complaint against Colin after she said that he had opened the trunk of her car. Although I was unable to find a disposition in this particular case. In February of that year, Ferguson was arrested while riding the New York City subway after a white woman attempted to sit next to him in an empty seat and asked him to move over a little bit. At this point, Ferguson began pressing his arms and legs against the woman while screaming uncontrollably at her. The police became involved and attempted to restrain Ferguson, who tried to escape, screaming at the top of his lungs to nearby African Americans, begging them to come help him. After his release, Ferguson began sending letters to the New York City Police Commissioner and other officials complaining about his arrest, describing it as, quote-unquote, vicious and racist. 
while claiming he was brutalized by the officers who arrested him. Apparently, this was investigated by the police department and found to be untrue. So at this point, you can really see the deterioration of Ferguson's mental faculties, and it just continues to get worse from here. We will be discussing that right after this. selling author of the House of Silver Dolls, the Blood Gotch Trilogy, and the Throwaway Girls of Olympia, comes Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie. The name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand, and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night, or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie! Who was she, and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told him of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. We are back. I just went and refilled my coffee. After the incident on the train which saw Colin Ferguson arrested, he ended up being awarded $26,250 for his workers' compensation claim, which, if you'll remember, he took out against a Demco security group. However, this was not enough for Colin Ferguson. In April of the following year, he ended up insisting that he was still suffering from pain and mental issues from his fall and demanding that his case be reopened as he wanted more money. Ferguson ended up contacting a law firm, seeing if they would take his case, and according to one of the lawyers who met with him for a consultation, although he was well-dressed, she felt very uneasy being around Colin Ferguson and, in fact, asked a, another woman to sit in with them. This after Ferguson gave a false name to them before providing his real name. And it's really at this point that his mania starts spiraling. The law firm decided not to take Ferguson's case, and as a consequence of this, he began making threatening phone calls to the law firm, at one point referencing various massacres that had taken place throughout the United States in the years prior. And this affected the people working at the law firm to the point that they began locking the doors to their individual offices as well as to the front door out of fear that he might come in and do something. 
Ferguson's mania further escalated when he got the Workers' Compensation Board to open up his claim again. However, after looking at it, they decided that he had no basis to seek more damages. And because of this, Ferguson began to harass people working on the board, so much so that the board actually placed his name on a list which was given to security guards who worked in the various buildings that the Workers' Compensation Bureau was located in as they felt that he might do something. This next point part I found on Murderpedia, apparently Ferguson moved to California at some point in 1993 and he did this under the guise of trying to find better paying jobs and according to the author on this Murderpedia page one such prospective employer actually laughed in Ferguson's face and the way I'm stating this is in this manner is because I can't find any other really corroborating evidence to prove that this particular incident actually happened and given Ferguson's propensity to make up situations which never actually happened I'm more inclined to believe that the car wash owner didn't like the look of or the vibe he got off of him and just declined to hire him which prompted Ferguson to turn around and say that the car wash owner was racist and had laughed at him when he attempted to seek employment from him. It is known that while he was in California, Ferguson purchased the Ruger P89 9mm semi-automatic pistol that he would later use to commit his crimes. He purchased the gun at Turner's Outdoorsman in Long Beach after waiting 15 days for a background check, and he paid $400 for the gun. You're probably wondering how Ferguson was able to pass the background check, especially considering his history of crimes in New York City. Well, Ferguson had a driver's license from California, and my guess, although I have no way to confirm or deny this, is that it was probably given under a false name. So when he went in to purchase the gun, he gave him this ID. They thought he was a California resident. They couldn't find anything in his background that sent up red flags, and they gave it to him. Ferguson supposedly was robbed by two African-American men while he was in California, and this led to him carrying the pistol around with him, hidden in a paper bag. Not long after this, Ferguson ended up moving back to New York City after telling friends that he did not like competing with the quote-unquote immigrants and Hispanics, and that he felt threatened by them on the West Coast. Ferguson ended up moving back to the same apartment he had occupied in Flatbush, and after moving back in, his landlord noted a considerable deterioration in Ferguson's mental faculties. Noting that Ferguson would speak in the third person, often about post-apocalyptic scenarios while claiming that black people would be rising up and would strike down their quote-unquote pompous rulers and oppressors. His deterioration became such that Ferguson began taking upwards of at least five showers a day and his neighbors complained to the landlord that they could hear him chanting during the night quote all the black people killing all the white people and this led his landlord to give Ferguson his notice that he had to move out by the end of the month 
On December 7, 1993, Colin Ferguson purchased a ticket at the Pennsylvania Station in New York City and boarded the third car on the Long Island Railroad evening commuter train to Hicksville. There were at least 80 other passengers on board when Ferguson took a seat on the western side of the third car. Ferguson did not get on the train, however, just for a ride. He brought his gun with him as well as a canvas bag filled with 160 rounds of ammunition. While the train approached the Maryland Avenue station, he pulled the gun out and spilled some of the ammo on the ground, at which point he began meticulously shooting at passengers on the train. As I stated in the show opener, the passengers on board didn't know what was going on at first. As Ferguson slowly walked down the train heading to the next car, and shot people on the left and right of him in a slow, meticulous manner, pausing to look each passenger in the eye before he shot them. Eventually, someone on board this train screamed, he's got a gun, he's shooting people, at which point the passengers in the third car began to panic. It's been noted in articles on this case that Ferguson pulled the trigger once every half second which means he was really you know spraying the car over the course of the three minutes during which the shooting took place he wound up reloading his gun twice during this shooting Passengers began trying to hide underneath their seats and escape from the car as he continued with his onslaught. Survivors later stated that as he opened fire, Ferguson stated over and over again, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. For anyone who's never encountered an individual with this type of mental instability, it's really unnerving, and you see it quite often in cities where you'll encounter, you know, a homeless person who has obvious mental issues, and they mumble to themselves constantly. Oftentimes, it's the same phrase or statement over and over again. After the train pulled into the station, or rather, while it was pulling in, passengers from the third car forced their way into another car, and apparently one of the other passengers became annoyed at this because he didn't realize what was going on and said something along the lines of, be patient. However, the passengers who had been in the third car were hearing none of it, and they actually forced open one of the doors to the train so that they could flee. While they're fleeing, Ferguson is in the midst of shooting and reloading his gun, and while he was reloading the third clip into his gun, passengers on the train had decided that now was their time to strike, and one individual screamed out, let's get him, at which point they mobbed Ferguson and knocked him to the ground, held him down, interesting when the engineer became aware of the shooting he decided not to open the doors and in fact instructed all the conductors on board to keep the doors closed later he stated this was because not all of the train's cars were in the station however one of the conductors in the third car decided to hell with this and climbed out of a window forcing one of the doors on the third car open so that the passengers inside of it could escape the madman in their midst. Supposedly, while Ferguson was being detained, he began to scream out, Oh God, what did I do? What did I do to deserve whatever it is that I get? I have to wonder, I can't find anything to ver- verify this or not, but I have a feeling that 
the passengers who restrained Ferguson probably beat the shit out of him a little bit. That might just be wishful thinking, but you do see that kind of stuff in cases like this where the perpetrator is subdued by civilians. A perfect example is the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez when he was stopped by the citizens in Los Angeles. They didn't just stop him. They beat him almost to death. And I have to think that Ferguson got a fairly similar treatment. A guy by the name of Andrew Roderick, who was an off-duty Long Island Railroad police officer, ended up coming into the car and placing Ferguson into handcuffs. When it was over, 19 people had been injured and 6 had been murdered. They were 27-year-old Amy Federici, 51-year-old James Gorky, 27-year-old Mi-Kyung Kim, 30-year-old Maria Teresa Tamanga Magado, 52-year-old Dennis McCarthy, and 24-year-old Richard Nettleton. After being placed in the back of a police car, a number of the survivors became hysterical as they noted that Ferguson was sitting calmly and deadpan in the back of the cruiser. After searching him, officers found scraps of notebook paper in his pockets, one of which was labeled reasons for this, another that said racism by Caucasians quote-unquote, Uncle Tom Negroes. Another piece of paper stated the false allegations against me by the filthy Caucasian racist female on the number one line, while other pieces of paper expressed anger towards the Workers' Compensation Board, the government of New York City, Asians, and quote-unquote, so-called civil rights leaders such as the Reverend Herbert Daughtry C., Vernon Mason, and Calvin Butts. They also found the name, home addresses, and phone numbers for a number of high-ranking officials within the New York City Police Department and the New York City government, as well as the law firm that Ferguson had been harassing for some months after they were to take his workers' compensation case. The NYPD was pretty quick to point out to the news media that the shooting was the work of someone who was obviously hate-filled and deranged. I remember when this all happened. Um, as I've stated, I grew up in New Jersey and Colin Ferguson was all over the news after the shooting and unlike today where they fo try and focus in on one aspect of the person, they had mental health issues or you know, the attack was racially motivated like that dipshit with the full haircut, the New York media just absolutely savaged Colin Ferguson at every chance they got and they got a lot of them because Ferguson, it was obvious to anybody with a pair of eyes that the guy was obviously mentally unstable, but the statements that he would give and the things that he would do in court were just so absolutely outrageous, it was mind-numbing to see. And this case had far-reaching consequences. Clinton actually became involved when he was president after the shooting took place, calling it a terrible human tragedy. This led to the eventual implementation of a nationwide uniform licensing system for gun owners. It also led to renewed interest in the death penalty in New York City, which would be reinstated until one of the bloated sacks of pus who ran the city and state a few years back repealed.
deal with. People in the African American community in New York began to become fearful as they you know, feared that there was going to be a backlash against them from the actions of one crazed individual. And Al Sharpton actually came out and said that all blacks were going to be demonized because of the actions of one individual, which wasn't the case. Pretty much everybody in the area knew that this guy was completely off of his rocker and that your average black guy or woman walking down the street had nothing to do with what this Looney Tunes did. But I mean, at least in the case of Al Sharpton, that didn't, you know, work into his, you know, let's get money in my pocket schemes, which that he continues to do. But that's a story for another time. Ferguson's attorneys requested that he have a psychological evaluation because, again, it was obvious that this guy was not mentally competent in any way, shape, or form, despite the fact that he had, according to the New York City Police Department, been planning the shooting for a number of weeks prior to the event. It was speculated that the defense would attempt an insanity plea based on the fact that they held that he did not know whether or not what he had done was right or wrong and in fact had no idea of what he had actually done. This was rejected by prosecutors who contended that Ferguson had stated after the crime, oh my god, what have I done? Ferguson was held at the Nassau County Jail and placed on a suicide watch, and they do that quite a bit on high-profile cases, such as you know, Jeffrey Epstein and a number of others, because they fear that the perpetrator of the you know, notorious crime is going to attempt to take the easy way out rather than face judgment for their actions. On January 19th, a grand jury handed out a 93-count indictment against Ferguson, which basically meant he would never see the light of day if convicted. Almost immediately after being placed in the Nassau County Jail, Ferguson began claiming unsubstantiatedly, I should add, that the prison guards and staff were harassing and assaulting him. And while those particular charges were never proven, on March 23rd of 1993, as Ferguson was returning to his cell, he was assaulted by a group of inmates. Ferguson ended up suffering a broken nose as well as a black eye. Apparently, prison officials had been warned by Ferguson's attorneys that an attack was imminent on their client. Five inmates ended up being charged with second-degree assault for being involved in the attack. And this kind of stuff continued while Ferguson awaited trial and was eventually placed on trial. Ferguson's lawyers ended up putting in a defense that he had been suffering temporary insanity due to what they called black rage, which they said stemmed from the horrific amount of racial prejudice that Ferguson had received while living in the United States. While all of this was going on, Ferguson for his part, began to claim that he was not involved in the attack and that it was in fact another black male who shared the exact same physical characteristics as well as the same address as him who had been responsible for the shooting. According to Ferguson's lawyers, he began to express to them that he was receiving messages from these same lawyers said that Ferguson told them there was a conspiracy against him orchestrated by those who hated God. On August 12th, Ferguson's lawyers 
asked the judge to look at Ferguson's competency once again, claiming that he was growing more delusional, further stating that he was becoming so unhinged it was nearly impossible for them to mount a successful defense. On August 20th, Ferguson went before the judge and refuted his lawyer's claims that he was mentally unfit. Ferguson was noted to go on long rambling diatribes at one point claiming that an officer who had transferred him from the Nassau County Jail had told him, quote unquote, you do realize someone else committed the shootings. When asked if he understood the prosecutor's role in his trial, Ferguson stated to portray injustices against me. In the end, the judge ruled against his defense, stating that according to psychiatrists, while mentally ill, Ferguson was able to understand the consequences and severity of his actions. In September, Ferguson's lawyers stated that they would mount an insanity defense despite their client's objections, and Ferguson began to express the idea that he should in fact represent himself. As he had done with the police officers who had arrested him and the workers' compensation board, Ferguson began inundating the judge assigned to his trial with letters complaining about the ineffectuality of counsel as well as demanding that he be allowed to represent himself at trial. Charges that the judge apparently you know, looked at and weighed because eventually he allowed Ferguson to represent himself at trial. And I remember, as I said, when all of this was going on, and you think this case is kind of bizarre to begin with, but when Ferguson actually went to trial, it was complete insanity, off-the-rails drama, the type of stuff that Hollywood writers wish that they could create. At trial, Ferguson claimed that the 93-count indictment that was brought against him had nothing to do with what he had actually done, but instead had everything to do with the year that it had taken place in, as it was 1993. Basically, he went on in rambling diatribes in his opening arguments that the reality was if it had taken place in 1971, he would have been charged with 71 counts. If it had been taken place in 1925, it would have been charged with 25 counts, etc., etc. Initially, Ferguson claimed that he had brought the gun on the train with him, but that he had fallen asleep and another man had taken it and done this actual crime. Later in the trial, he would turn around and state that a white man had actually committed the crime and that Ferguson had been blamed for it. He stated that a man named Mr. Sue had informed him of conspiracy against him and claimed to have had a witness who was going to testify that the government had implanted a computer chip in Ferguson's brain, although Ferguson decided not to call this man. It was noted by the media that when Ferguson would question witnesses, he would often refer him to himself in the third person, asking questions such as, Did you see Colin Ferguson shoot you? Or did you see Colin Ferguson shoot individual X? To which the witness would reply with some manner of, I saw you shoot person X. But he did a lot of other weird things, as attempt, such as attempting to call both President Clinton and the head of the FBI and CIA to testify at the trial. Another statement he gave later to the media was that 
the Jewish Defense League had put a hit out on him should he be convicted, and that the murder of Jeffrey Dahmer in prison was a prelude to his own demise behind bars. Obviously, Ferguson's defense was ineffectual, and he was convicted on February 17, 1995, for the murder of six passengers and the attempted murder of the 19 who were wounded. Ferguson ended up receiving 315 years and 8 months to life, with his earliest possible parole date being August 6, 2309. There was a lot of fallout from Ferguson with lawsuits brought against the manufacturers of the gun, which in my opinion rightfully failed. And as discussed in last week's episode, in 1994, Ferguson and Joel Rifkin ended up getting into a fistfight concerning a payphone. According to a New York Daily News article, the fight escalated after Ferguson told Rifkin, I wiped out six devils and you only killed women, to which Rifkin replied, yeah, but I had more victims. So, if you want to find out more about this case, uh, the majority of my notes came from the Murderpedia entry on Colin Ferguson. Uh, again, I've stated it in other episodes. That's really the go-to if you want to get through all of the, you know, hype and bullshit and get to the of a case if it's on there their entries on the cases are usually pretty good I also you know looked into the New York Times uh, archived articles on it as well as the New York Daily Post Uh, my own opinion on Ferguson is that it's obvious that he is suffering from severe mental illness and while I don't feel he should ever be released from prison. I also don't think he should be in a regular prison. I personally believe that he needs to be in a mental hospital somewhere where they can treat his symptoms to the best of their ability and try to return him to some semblance of normalcy and then maybe they can try him and find out you know really why he did this shooting or just keep him locked up in that facility for his own safety as well as the safety of others. That is going to do it for the Death Cast this week. Uh, again, I would like to thank you for joining me. If you enjoyed this show, please like and or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a five-star review. They really do help out with the show. They help raise it up so that others can find it. Share it on social media. Tell your friends. Tell somebody. If you're interested in any of my five current novels, that's the Blood Dodge Trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, or The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, you can find them on Amazon.com. If you would like to say just a thanks for doing this show, Again, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the donate button, buy me a cup of coffee, sign up for the mailing list. I will not inundate you with spam or any other unwanted contact. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.
Tadatkas. Tadatkas.